Hello, it's Monique. And Landon. And hopefully the spring flowers in your part of the world are starting to spring, bloom. Spring is coming. And what we say, hope springs eternal, right? I never say that. You've never said that? No. It's probably my age, and that's why we say it that way. And your English literature background. Maybe it might have something to do with it. So our podcast this month is called Breathe Right. I wonder what it's about. Breathing. Maybe. Properly. Right. Yes. So the other day at work, we had a young man present to the emergency department with complaints of chest tightness and shortness, shortness of breath, or SOB, which is stopping him from his workout regime for a whole year. He has seen several healthcare professionals, and he was diagnosed with costochondritis. For your information only, costochondritis is a painful condition of the chest wall. It is caused by inflammation in the joints between the cartilage that join the ribs to the sternum. Although it's quite painful, it's not usually a serious condition, and usually it has no obvious cause, and it settles over time. And generally speaking, painkillers, anti-inflammatory specifically, can be used to relieve symptoms. But back to my patient or our patient, my NP student. Is that, that a bit of a soapbox? I know it was a little bit, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. But back to my patient, uh, Lindsay, my NP student, and I wondered if he actually had exercise-induced asthma. And we decided to do a peak flow reading, which got me thinking about discussing a spirometry and how helpful it is or isn't in the clinical setting to help diagnose or differentiate between respiratory ailments. And lo and behold... Another podcast was born, and here we are. <laughs> um, I think we, before we start, though, I should actually re- defer to my nerdy partner in crime here, and maybe we should go over some basics, like the difference between ventilation and oxygenation, the importance of kind of respiratory rates, pulse oximeter and capnography, and o- oxygen flow rates and FiO2. Really? Yeah. I think that might be helpful for people. You're asking a transport nurse to talk about ventilation? Well, I think it's important for all of us to know it. The podcast is suddenly going to be three hours long. No, 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 no. We can't do that. Because if there's one thing a transport nurse is passionate about, it's nurses knowing this kind of stuff that we have to do every day. Exactly. But I do think... none of us learned in nursing school. Absolutely. And you pick it up later. And call the RT, although we love our RT colleagues, should never be the right answer. No, absolutely not. You should know some of these basics. Well, I think knowledge is power. I think Absolutely. that that's something you and I have always kind of strive for, that it's important for nurses to have knowledge. That's very G.I. Joe of you. I know it is, isn't knowledge it? Is knowledge is power. Anyway, okay. 80s reference aside, <laughs> let's talk about a few of these things. So one, very briefly, the difference between ventilation and oxygenation. Mm-hmm. This is probably the number one thing I wish nurses would um, use the proper terminology. Ventilation is the exchange of air between lungs and the atmosphere so that carbon dioxide can be eliminated. When we say someone is ventilating well, we mean their blood gas, CO2, is normal. Yeah. When we say they're hypoventilating, yeah. it means their CO2 has gone up. And, funny, we actually use this term normally, when you're hyperventilating, yes. your CO2 is too low. Exactly. Nothing to do with oxygen. No. So that person who's breathing fast and got all numb fingers and stuff, nothing to do with oxygen. All to do with carbon dioxide. Exactly, which is ventilation. Oxygenation mm-hmm. is the ability to get oxygen to the cells of the body. So it's gas exchange, really. Typically through the blood. Yeah. Okay? Okay. So that's the simple. Yeah. Oxygenation, get oxygen into the blood. Yeah. Ventilation, get it out. Oxygenation is super easy. Yeah. We can actually take someone who's not breathing. Yeah. 
flood their airways with oxygen and oxygen will move into the blood and still oxygenate their cells and they will in theory stay alive forever yes there's no reason they should die however ventilation is an active process you need to actually go <gasps> and breathe <laughs> yes exactly to make some space for mm-hmm. the co2 to come out of the blood and then get rid of it through your mouth eventually isn't that funny? All of a sudden, I had this real urge to do the yoga thing where we all take a nice deep breath. Everyone breathe in. A de- deep cleansing breath. And out. And, and you have now ventilated. Absolutely. You have not oxygenated any more so than you would have before. So everybody out there in Radio Land or wherever, take that's a very old reference. Podcast. <gasps> Podcast land. Dumb. Yeah. Podcast. Podcast. Dumb. Okay. So take all, everybody take a deep breath in. Breathe out. Don't crash your car. There we go. All right. Don't get too relaxed because I know (laughs) a lot of you are actually driving while you listen to us. Kind of fun. All right. So ventilation, getting rid of CO2. Yeah. Oxygenation, getting oxygen in. Simple. Perfect. All right. Got it. Soapbox time. We always have a soapbox or two. I know. A couple of things. This is both of our soapbox. I know. And since you made it your soapbox one time to me, it's now my soapbox. Yes, it is. So... Let's talk about respiratory rate. Yeah. Monique, in your practice Mm -hmm. of maybe reviewing, I don't know, 1.78 million charts in your 97-year career. Yes. How many patients have had a respiratory rate? Anything but 18. Well, maybe 16 or 18. Just to give you a little bit of a, Cast a wider net. Wider net. 16 or 18. Probably 100% of my patients. 100% of your patients have had a documented respiratory rate. Of 16 or 18. Of 16 to 18. Yeah. Even when they're on a ventilator yep. with a rate set at 20. Yes. It's yeah. either 16 or it's 18. 16 or 18. Yeah. And all of you out there in podcast-dom. Yes. We know that you're all there too. Yes, exactly. 16 so, or 18. Let's understand why we breathe first. Yeah. Again, when you hold your breath, carbon dioxide levels rise. The brain detects that. And it says, getting a little high. We need to do one of these in out to yeah. get rid of some CO2. We yeah. don't want to get rid of all of it. There's a yeah. reason your normal CO2 is 35 to 45. Right. Because you need to leave some behind. Exactly. That's called homeostasis. <laughs> and Not hemostasis, like Monique tried to interchange those two terms a few months ago. Exactly. Last so, month, actually. Oh, what, no, a couple of months ago. What makes us breathe is the increased level of carbon dioxide in our blood. Respiratory rate is one element of ventilation, and it's related to our tidal volume. So the tidal volume is the amount of air that goes in and out in one breath. The average for most of us is about 500 mils. Really yeah. easy. There's a, a actually quite a complicated math equation uh, to figure out what their tidal. expected tidal volume should be. Yeah. Easy way is to just say it's about 500. Yeah. Little caveat, if you are a nurse setting up a ventilator for an initially intubated patient, don't just use 500. Yeah. Do the complicated way. But for our discussion here, we'll say it's about 500. When tidal volume is multiplied by respiratory rate, you get minute volume. Right. So if I breathe 10 times a minute at 500 mils per breath, my minute volume is 5 liters. Right. Or 5 liters per minute. Yeah. And our bodies are quite smart, though, right? They Mm -hmm. kind of figure out that. It figures this out for us. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But we're going to talk about liters per minute in a a little while. Yeah. And we're going to see this is the same. (laughs) This is the same unit of measure. Yeah. Okay. So when tidal volume... Oh, I talked about that. Yeah. The body figures out the perfect minute volume in order to maintain your carbon dioxide levels and pH of the body within normal limits. Right. This doesn't have anything to do with oxygen. No. Oxygen is so easy to get into the blood and so abundant in the blood that it actually doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. 
Now, when you become hypoxic, some things might change. Yeah. But generally, when you become hypoxic, you become unconscious. Right. Your CO2 goes up, which causes you to try to breathe more. Exactly. It's not that your brain goes, oh, we're starving for oxygen. Let's breathe faster. No. Okay. All right. So what if a person's tidal capacity for tidal volume has been reduced? So there could be pulmonary disease, obesity, age, or the person becomes acidotic, secondary to sepsis, DKA, pick your disease of yeah. the moment, trauma. Yeah. In order to maintain the perfect minute volume right. when their tidal volume decreases yeah. or their CO2 production increases, they, gotta they increase. need to increase the rate. This is simple math. So they have to increase the respiratory if rate, suddenly right? suddenly I can only get in 300 mils, yeah. but I still need that five liters, I now yeah. need to breathe 20 whatever times Exactly. But this your is... pulse oximeter is still going to be oh, we'll talk normal, about right? In a I know, like, I know. That stupid machine, honestly, <laughs> killed more people than it saved. But, yeah. but it's important that you kind of get that tidal volume piece. Right. So if my demand increases and demand means I'm making more CO2 than I can get rid of. So mm-hmm. my demand to breathe more is there. Right. So that's kind of your sepsis, lactating, right. acidotic patient. So you see people who are tachypnic, right? You yeah. see their respiratory rates increase. Or if say I have a, a big hemothorax, yeah. which now only one lung's really working. Yeah. So my rate might need to double to maintain right. homeostasis. homeostasis. Yeah. All right. Really, we don't, count respiratory rates very no. well and it's super important there's a lot of good research out there there's a lot of good um, clinical decision pathways that are based on respiratory, respiratory rate. rate yeah and when you and you're cheating the patient when you only put 16 or 18 yeah. respiratory rate is the first thing to change yeah. when we create excess hydrogen ions yeah. through the carbonic acid cycle which maybe yeah. will be another podcast yeah we create increased co2 and we yeah. breathe it out it's the first thing that happens yeah. so it's a sick person the first thing that's going to happen is their respiratory rate is going to go up before yeah. they get a fever before their heart rate goes up before their blood pressure goes down and if we miss that yeah we are now waiting for those other vital signs yeah and some of those people might be past the point of no return and you know what's really in- interesting um landon for me when we talk about respiratory rates you think about trauma team activations and respiratory rate is in there right. and then we just talked about SERS criteria and QSOFA last month guess what S- respiratory rates all in there so the medical community understands this concept of how important respiratory rate is far more important than pulse oximeter which I'm going to talk about right now because those are early signs mm-hmm. and if you miss those early signs those poor patients actually fatigue and then right. they end up having poor pulse oximeter but that's way late for, for, you've already missed it haven't probably you probably a day exactly they and have already been breathing fast i know and nobody noticed yeah it. so we're both trying to squeeze onto our soapbox here and but just remember that respiratory rates are very important and we'll probably say that at least another four or five times probably during this podcast so Please. let me talk about pulse oximeter and end tidal co2 Please do. i know that is the, the most next, important machine ever well, well, it's going to be our next soapbox, unfortunately. Um, pulse oximeter is a tool. It tells us how much of the hemoglobin is loaded with oxygen or something else, like carbon monoxide and CO poisonings. So it's, it's really a hemoglobin saturation it is. monitor. It's exactly that. And it can be affected by many things, like anemia, poor perfusion, the wrong size of the probe, just to name a few things that it could be affected just to with. name one of 37 things that could be wrong. So you do have to use it with caution, and you use it really with trending, and make sure you consider the clinical picture of the patient with that. It shouldn't be a standalone tool. It should right. be 
in context of what else is going on with the patient. So if I have Granny Fufu whose sats were 98, yes, I haven't changed anything over the last two hours, and right. now they're 92. Yes. That's saying something's changed. Exactly. It's not saying that machine is completely accurate. No. But it's telling me something's changed. So maybe I should go back and look at poor and, Granny Fufu. And look Fufu. at Granny Fufu and figure something out. Exactly. That's really what it's for. Exactly. Now, there's been actually, now I'm going to switch gears and talk about another machine called um, Entitled CO2 or capnography. Or the ventilation machine. It is. Exactly. Exactly. Now, there's been a lot of interest interest in capnography recently from its use in ensuring correct placement of an ET tube to its use in conscious sedation and also to assess effectiveness of compressions in CPR. So perhaps we need to explain a little bit more here. Capnography measures how much carbon dioxide is present in the patient's breath, which is why we talk about ventilation again, isn't it? You're seeing a pattern here um, because we said carbon dioxide is what stimulates us to breathe. The cells use the oxygen, produce carbon dioxide as a waste product. The CO2 goes through a series of steps before it's expelled out of the body. The capnography capnograph is able to measure that expelled CO2. This is extremely useful as it helps to detect problems along the pathway taken by CO2. So for example, if your patient stops breathing, CO2 will not be able to get out and you would have a low CO2 reading. And the end tidal is is approximately equal to your arterial blood CO2. So 35 to 45 is normal. Exactly. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. So using it's, it's fantastic. I, I'm going to break yeah, in and use a case course. here. There's a perfect case right now, as if you're involved in the world media at all, yeah. uh, Vancouver has a an opioid crisis right. uh, with overdose deaths. And and we talked about that, actually, um, at right, the end of the year, right? a few right? months ago. Yeah. Um, and... Interest, this the overdose patient is quite an interesting mm-hmm. patient to right. look at this with because you can put a SAP probe on someone who is has a rate of you know four to six right who is overdosed on something right like opioid we're going to use and their SATs will be ninety four ninety two maybe ninety right but really someone breathing four to six times a minute still often has because these are often younger people yeah have that ability to still oxygenate fine. You put an entitled CO2 monitor on them, that one breath they take every 15 seconds where yeah. they go and they breathe out, their CO2 is 70. Yeah. Like they have not been expelling CO2. They've been yeah. building it up and that one breath pushes all, all of it CO2 out at one time. Out, right. Mm, interesting. So it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, someone who's just using pulse oximetry will put it on and go, oh, well, their SATs are 94. They're fine. You measure the CO2 coming out. Remember, and that's you can concerning, oxygenate isn't anything. It? Yeah. Suddenly, well, is that why they're unconscious? Exactly. And all kinds of other things need to be done. But it's just an it's an interesting thing. Yeah. I'll tell you, at the bedside, for me in my practice, carbon dioxide is way more indicative of how your patient's exactly. doing. Exactly. Than pulse oximetry. Absolutely. Which I think is why we're moving to that way. So using capnography for ET placement has become a cold standard. Totally. Um, it tells us about the presence of CO2. If the ET tube is placed incorrectly in the stomach or esophagus, you get a flat reading. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Because the lungs have CO2, whereas the stomach and esophagus have little or no CO2. The recent um, ILCOR guidelines have recommended end-tidal CO2 monitoring or capnography with CPR as a surrogate marker of cardiac output. So a gradual fall in um, end-tidal CO2 suggests uh, compressor 
fatigue during CPR, so you need to change um, the compressor. A, an abrupt increase in your end tidal CO2 um, suggests, hey, wait a minute, maybe the heart started totally pumping again. CO2 so, suddenly 80? Yeah, exactly. It's not so your quickly CPR. stop and check your pulse uh, and make sure that that's what's happening. And actually, you know, an end tidal CO2 at 20 minutes of CPR is prognostically useful. So greater than 20 mils of mercury at 20 minutes have a higher chance of um, return of spontaneous compression. If you have less than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury at 20 minutes, there's almost no chance of return of spontaneous um, circulation. circulation. What did I say? Compression. Oh, I'm sorry. ROSC. Yes, ROSC. Yeah, but that's quite interesting because then it helps you to determine at 20 minutes, should I keep on going or maybe... I should stop here. You know, we're flogging a we're, dead we're horse, not, kind of. Yeah. We're not circulating through exactly. the lungs. Exactly. So that's really what's the measure of yeah, getting absolutely. blood through the lungs. So very interesting, right? isn't it? It is. And, yeah. and the flip side of that also is you have a patient who is a post-cardiac arrest yeah. patient who you're now ventilating. So they're not going to stop breathing if they yeah. re-arrest because you've got them on a ventilator. And if you're continuously measuring CO2, and even yeah. if it's normal and suddenly the next few breaths it goes, you know, 20, 15, 3, they just rearrested. Yes, exactly. You Even before the pulse stops. You don't it? need yeah. to wait until they've had no pulse, PEA for two minutes, go into VFib when yeah. most of us will go, oh, they just rearrested. Yeah. No, they actually arrested a few minutes ago. Yeah. And Entitle will tell you that. Perfect. Oh, fascinating. I know. It is fascinating. interesting. It's quite interesting. All right. Last little thing we're going to talk about with oxygenation is oxygen flow rate and FiO2. So as we've said, harped on almost almost at the harping a little bit today patients can either have a problem with oxygenation or ventilation so discussing oxygen flow rate and fio2 is going to guide us to some practical applications if you have a patient with a problem with oxygenation Mm -hmm. they need a higher fio2 which stands for fraction of inspired oxygen oxygen. yeah and we refer to it always as a percent right so you will either see FiO2 of 40% right. or depending on the clinician who documents it, they may put 0.4 right? like as a decimal or 0.45 or 45%. Again, it's just two different ways of writing the same thing down. Yeah. So while... If your patient has a problem with ventilation then... Oh, right. They need a higher flow rate. Yeah. So oxygenation needs a FiO2 higher and if it's a ventilation problem, problem they need to breathe more often often so it's or a deeper. flow rate yeah yes. okay so we inhale air that's about 21 percent oxygen at, when we at our level right at sea level right, right. so we, we're at sea level yeah. and about 21 percent oxygen is here okay when i breathe in i breathe in 21 percent mm-hmm. when i breathe out I actually breathe out 16%. Right, because you keep so some of it, right? I'm only using 5% of what I'm breathing in. So yeah. really, and the physics are a little more complicated than this, but I could actually go into a much less or more oxygen-deprived environment yeah. and still take my 5% yeah. and be fine. So we don't use much of what we breathe in. So right. when we're running at people, putting them all on high-flow oxygen, mm-hmm. the majority of them don't actually need it. Right. Right? Yeah. They probably need more ventilatory support yeah. than oxygenation support. Yeah. All right, but let's carry on. So occasionally patients will require a higher FiO2 in order to maintain an adequate oxygen saturation, which is why we use some of these oxygen delivery systems. Right. Each of those systems, nasal prong, simple mask, non-rebreather mask, deliver different FiO2. Right. Typically, when especially with nasal prongs, the yeah. easy math is 
Obviously, if you put it on and you don't turn it on, yeah. it's twenty one percent. Yes, you always get to breathe the room air. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then for every one liter you increase, you typically go up about four percent. Sometimes right. you have to fudge the math and do about three. Yeah, so three. But or when four. we get to six liters per minute, we say that's about forty percent. Right. Okay. Um, so, for example, if FiO two is normal room air is twenty one percent, you put them on two liters, you're now getting yeah. about twenty eight percent. So it's kind of confusing, though, for me. So maybe you can explain this. So when you hook up the oxygen, you put somebody mm. in the oxygen, and you turn on. Right. But it's like 100% oxygen, but you turn it on to right. two liters or four liters. So that's why we call it FiO2, yeah. fraction of inspired, of the inspired oxygen. oxygen. Oh, okay. So what's coming out of the nasal prongs yeah. is 100% oxygen. Okay. Because it's coming out of a tank that has... 100% oxygen. Oh, written on it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's coming out of that t- those nasal prongs is 100% oxygen. Okay. But when I breathe in, right. I'm not sucking the air out of the nasal prongs out of the wall. Right. I am getting whatever's in my nasal passages oh, okay. that's gone in there since my last breath. Right. And because there's not enough in there for my yeah. whole 500cc tidal volume, yeah. it is also mixing with the atmospheric air I'm oh, drawing in. okay. Which is why it's called a fraction. A fraction of inspired oh, okay, oxygen. okay, okay. That so, makes sense. So if I turn it up to six liters per minute, I say that my FiO2 in the end in my alveoli is going to be about 40%. Right. That's because that six liters blasting in the nasal prongs fills my nose and my mouth and some of my trachea between breaths. Then when I breathe in, it draws that in, but there's none left. And so it pulls in atmospheric air. It all mixes Mixes in my alveoli and there's about 40% in the end. I see. Okay. The only way to truly guarantee 100% Right. Oxygen being delivered is in a closed system on a ventilator okay. and dialing it up to 100% okay. and being connected to an oxygen source. Right. Because you can't, you're not actually getting you any can't. atmosphere because yeah. it's a closed system. It's a closed system. system right? Ah, okay. See, that makes a lot more sense to me. All right. All righty. Let me scroll down here. See, I'm getting, I'm getting all excited about I this. Know. I'm not even looking at our notes. Okay. I think I've sorted myself out. Okay. So if you have a patient who has a problem with oxygenation, they need a higher FiO2. So patients, say, who have pneumonia, right. who are not oxygenating well, so the oxygen in their blood is actually having trouble getting, getting into, into their into the blood, cells. which okay. is rare, but yeah, someone with pneumonia, sure. they might have, if it's big enough, have trouble getting it in there. You need to put more oxygen there because oh, maybe not okay. as much as would normally just move across the alveolar membrane right. is able to. So we put more little oxygens down there yeah. so that there isn't nitrogen taking up space, okay. which is the other gas that's really sure. involved in the atmosphere that has no use to us. So then you would turn up your FiO2, yeah. right? we turn our FiO2 up. Oh, right. Okay, now some people who are struggling with getting the air in right. may need us to help them get the air in. Okay. And that's a totally different thing. So I can push air into somebody and I can push room air into somebody. Right. And if they did not require higher oxygen, they just needed help pushing the air in, they'll be yeah. fine. So like what kind of patients are we talking about? So a respiratory arrest is a oh, okay. good example, That's a great right? Ex- yeah. Most uh, Overdose is a perfect example. Yeah. They don't necessarily mean more oxygen. They just need air to be blown in blown and out because they're not breathing. Yeah. Um, actually, a, the grand majority of patients yeah. don't necessarily need the higher oxygen. Right. When they're struggling to breathe, they just need help getting what oxygen is in the room air down there now we typically will always put someone on some oxygen yeah and it's not harmful in most populations yeah to give them 30 or 40 percent percent yeah okay so it's kind of like spinal cord patients right high spinal cord patients sure another great example right they can't get 
most of them young, the healthy, yeah. um, isolated injury. Right. For, for the most part, spinal yeah. cord injuries are an isolated injury. And they just can't get that volume. So they just need right. help pushing the air in. So they need an increase. Most of them have young, healthy lungs. Yeah. They don't need more than 21%. Right. So they right. just need an increased flow rate. Yeah. I get it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, COPD exacerbation is another yeah. perfect patient population. They may need help blowing the air in and supplemental oxygen okay. to get that air in. Right. So they okay. need both, right? Or so sorry, they... to increase their oxygen. Right. So, so they, they need... may need both. Okay. They may need push air in with supplemental oxygen. Right. And then one concept that we don't have really time to get into on a large scale is leaving some pressure behind. Okay. And we call that PEEP. Peep. Ah, okay. okay. And that's huge for a lot of these patients. Right. The asthmatics, the COPD ears yeah. is if we don't let their lungs completely close every time, when we go to push the next breath in or when they try and suck the next breath in, yeah. much easier because the air be passages pushed. are already Absolutely. open. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's very good. It's nice and easy, isn't it? I hope it was easy. I think it is. We'll get a bunch of emails going, I'm more confused than ever. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Anyway. Now, this seems like quite the introduction before we've actually... A 25-minute introduction. Well, we, even before discussing spirometry, but it's necessary to give you a foundation before understanding and trying to interpret spirometry readings. Now, we're not saying that spirometry replaces a complete pulmonary function test, which actually probably provides the most accurate objective assessment of lung impairment, but it can kind of help you at the bedside to treat and perhaps sometimes even triage who should be referred for pulmonary function tests. So spirometry measures the rate at which your lung changes volume during forced breathing maneuvers. You ask your patient to take a full inhalation followed by a forced expiration that rapidly empties the lungs. And your expiration is continued for as long as possible until a plateau in your exhale volume is reached. To make sure the results are valid, you have to kind of get the patient to do it three times. And in each test, patients should exhale for at least six seconds, and there is no volume change for one second. That makes it an accurate reading. Now, the real reason we do spirometry is to determine whether there is an obstructive or a restrictive cause of the patient's respiratory issue. So lung function is physiologically divided into four volumes. This is just for your interest only. Expiratory reserve volume, inspiratory reserve volume, residual volume, and tidal volume. And together, those four volumes equal the total lung capacity. So lung volumes and their combinations marry, measure sorry, various lung capacities such as functional residual capacity, uh, inspiratory capacity, and vital capacity, which is important when we're talking about um, uh, spinal cord injuries, for example. Now, we know there are a lot of words and terms here, and we'll try to make it as simple as possible and clinically relevant. So let's just kind of start with who should or should not get spirometry in the emergency department. So if you have a history of pulmonary symptoms like a cough, dyspnea, wheezing with no history of any kind of pulmonary disease, might be helpful. Two, any kind of physical findings. So if you have chest wall abnormalities, you notice finger clubbing with, again, no history, that might be helpful. Sometimes, maybe not in an emergency department, but sometimes is assessing the severity or the progression of the disease. So if you have an ex, um, asthma exacerbation in the emergency department or a COPD exacerbation, that, that might be helpful to do a spirometry. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, so I've talked about who should. If but you're going to talk about who should, I'm <laughs> no. going to take the opposite of and talk about you would. who we shouldn't do I this know. on. Um, 
really, remember, the patient has to be cooperative right. and has to be able to make the respiratory effort. Right. Makes and, sense, And if you've it? ever seen this, this is the one, if you've done it, you know what I'm talking about. But for the nurses that work with RTs, this is where yeah. you hear the RT screaming behind a curtain. Yeah. Like, blow, 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 blow. Yeah, and exactly. the patient is, like, blowing for, as you said, a good six, six seconds, seconds at I least know. with a consistent flow. Yeah. Um, so if you have someone who is barely breathing yeah. and guppy breathing, pooping exactly. out, yeah. head is down, congestive heart failure type person, yeah, yeah they need ventilation. They exactly. don't need spirometry. You know it's bad. Um, so they need to be cooperative, able to make the effort. Anything else that might attest, affect test performance, vomiting and nausea, don't make them take these no, big no. breaths and barf into your spirometry exactly. machine. No. It's expensive. No. Um, any you know fluids or blood that's going to get into, into that, that machine system. it's not going to measure flow very well and it's kind of yucky let's yes. be honest yeah recent abdominal or thoracic surgery recent mi unstable angina eye surgery because so you are asking them to pressure, really right? increase the pressure yeah. in your face and some people when you see them doing this their whole face turns red i know um and again, if you think they have a pneumothorax, probably not a probably good idea. don't want to get them to take no. big breaths and blow out again. <laughs> Increase the their intrathoracic pressure, right? And it's no. not that the device inhibits or places pressure in it. It's no. just like try blowing through a straw. Exactly. There is some natural back pressure in the system. That, Absolutely. Uh, happens. So we're always looking for ways to simplify the information. So let's mm. talk about a five-step process to interpretation of spirometry results. There's really two numbers you're going to look at. One is the forced vital capacity, or the FVC, to look at if it's within normal range. Yeah. Next, look at the forced expiratory volume in one second, or FEV1. So forced vital capacity, that's kind of the amount. That they can push out, yeah. And the forced expiratory volume is how flow they can push out in one second. One minute, How yeah. quick can they get oh, that air second, out? Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, so if the FEV, FVC and FEV1 are both normal, you stop. It's normal. Yeah, exactly. Don't look Don't, into it further. Yeah. Uh, if the FVC and or the FEV1 are decreased, there's a strong possibility of lung disease. So then you would look at the percent of the predicted. So this yeah. is based on um, their age, their gender, that kind of thing. What yeah. we would predict given a whole bunch of people that they've researched. Yeah. Um, if the percent of predicted for FEV1 or FVC is 69% or less, it's indicative of an obstructive disease. Right. So like. COPD. Yes, exactly. If the percent predicted for the ratio is above 69%, but less than normal, yeah, there may be a restrictive lung disease like asthma. asthma. Yeah. Either way, yeah. the test is abnormal. Yeah. We can patch them up and send them back out on the street. Yeah. Or we could do what's probably right and refer them to a pulmonary function lab for a pulmonary function, function test. test. Yeah. So this is kind of the street side version yeah. of what should be done longer yes. term if we kind of get a couple of clues that something's wrong yeah treat them today yeah but book them for a outpatient pulmonary function test if it's appropriate to send yeah. them home and i i do want to say that none of us are asking you to go out there because i'm not sure if each of you do spirometries and you put have a machine and but those are the numbers or what we're really talking about. How do you interpret the right. measurements that are there? And somebody else has done the test, right? So anyway, now you may remember that at the beginning, it's been so long since we started, but at the beginning we discussed that with our patient, Lindsay and I actually did a peak flow reading. Um, our RT was a bit busy with a couple of intubations, so wasn't able to come over to do that. 
And our patient had waited some time and the rest of all his blood work, his ECG, chest X were all negative. So we just decided to go with checking his peak flows. Now peak flows are the peak expiratory flow rate and it's in the measurement of how much the patient can blow out of their lungs in one breath. It is a crude measurement and not as accurate as a spirometer, but as, oh. Well, a spirometer is the yes, machine. Yes, I know. You were almost there. I know I was. Anyway, not as accurate as spirometry, um, but it does give us a sense of lung functioning and it's often used by patients who have asthma. As you all know, asthma is a chronic condition and characterized by ongoing inflammation of the airways. So a common kind of symptoms would be shortness of breath that worsens with activity, wheezing, and cough. So the flow of exhaled hair from the lungs may be restricted due to inflammation or congestion from that excess mucus. Flow rates lessen when the airways are blocked. So asthma patients may experience low peak flow rates before they even develop breathing symptoms. So with our patient... All of this as well in the presence of Bronchoconstriction. Absolutely. So with our patient, he did have low peak flows, which improved dramatically when we gave him a Ventolin puffer with a spacer. Now, this doesn't mean that we diagnosed him with asthma, but it meant that we wanted him to go to respiratory rapid access clinic for a complete assessment, including diagnostic tests for asthma. In the meantime, he was given a Ventolin puffer with a spacer until he could get those things done. Great. I know. One of the dangers of doing these podcasts is that one topic leads into another. I know. And so before we really talk about asthma. Yeah. Because. It may be a topic, right? It's relevant. Right. Let's summarize this podcast. Okay. Let, let's do that, please. And we won't go into asthma today. No, not today. You will have to wait for the future. <laughs> exactly. Of asthma. Mm-hmm. All right. So in summary, number one, ventilation is the act of getting rid of CO2. Right. And oxygenation is getting oxygen in. Right. Number two, counting respiratory rate is? Extremely, extremely important. Number three, pulse oximetry has some limitations, best for trending. Yes. And all hail to the end tidal CO2 machine. I know. We love it. And we should be using it more. Exactly. Number four, if your patients have a problem with oxygenation, they need a higher FiO2. If they have a problem with ventilation... They need more flow, Mm -hmm. i.e. higher rate or more volume. Exactly. Spirometry can identify restrictive versus obstructive lung disease and can indicate who needs further testing. And peak flows are a crude but helpful bedside measure. But in the presence of someone there to be able to do spirometry, do that instead. Exactly. That was fun. Wow, 30 minutes summarized in six points. Maybe we should have just started with that. I know, I think we should have. If you felt the last half hour was a waste of your time, (laughs) you should have just forwarded to the end. (laughs) You should have learned by now. Exactly. All right. That's it for this month. And we will see you in April. Exactly. Goodbye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursem.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. 
the Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.